You know, one of my favorite sayings, something that I'm constantly sharing with my students and even saying to myself is slowing down is waking up. So I guess you could almost say that 2020 has been the year of waking up for a lot of us. Hello, hello out there. It is Shara Carruthers here, excited as always to be connecting with you and sharing another juicy conversation with my beautiful friend, Maria Kirsten. And this time we're actually talking with one of Maria's oldest friends, Christine Calvary Weber. And what a fantastic chat it was. Not only was it a chance for me to find out more about what Maria was like back in the day, it's also a really fun and enlightening exploration of the many beautiful facets of the practice of yoga, both on the mat and off, especially in the context of the crazy world that we're living in. So who is this Christine Weber, you might be asking? Well, she is what we would call a yoga revolutionary, in no small part because she, for decades, she's been talking about the benefits of slow, mindful movement as a potential solution to the healthcare crisis that we've been experiencing for a really long time. And now influential people outside of the yoga world are actually starting to listen. In fact, just last year, she was invited to speak to members of the U.S. Congress about yoga therapy and about its place in the healthcare system. She's also been leading the charge with trainings and for yoga teachers and yoga students and even clinical services all under the banner of Subtle Yoga for years. She is a resident of Asheville, North Carolina, and given what's been happening in the U.S. as well as the rest of the world, we ended up talking quite a bit about the subject of resilience, which is another one of Christine's specialties. We also talked about some the unique ways that she's creating community around the process of building more resilience, something that we all really need a lot of right now. I got to tell you, she's so interesting and accomplished that I could go on and on about where she's been and what she's done and what she's doing. But rather than that, why don't we just jump into this fabulous conversation that Maria and I had with her good friend and my new friend and hero, Christine Calvary Weber. Enjoy. going to start it today. Shara handed me the microphone. So welcome everybody and welcome to Christine Kaveri Weber of Subtle Yoga, uh, who is a, a really actually long old time friend of mine and we'll get into some of our history, but I'm so excited to be talking to you in the podcast realm. Yeah. So we will have given a, a long introduction of, of what your, your whole bio and everything is so we can get right into it and find out how are you and what's been going on for you lately. I'm good. I'm um, uh, working on my resilience, (laughs) as we all need to be at the moment. But no, I'm doing great. And lately, I have been, you know, just like pounding it out on the online stuff. I'm just I'm just teaching online, 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 just like everybody. Right. But um, but it's great. I've I feel really fortunate. I've already been teaching online for a couple of years, so it wasn't that much different for me mm. to make a transition. Um, and, you know, like personally, everything's everything's great. I live in a beautiful place. I take nice walks in the woods every day. And, you know, my son's playing soccer with his buddy, so he gets outside and does a little social distancing but still gets some activity. And, 
you know, I joined a CSA, so I get lots of nice fresh veggies and uh, just my life is like great, but we're, you know, there's this plague happening. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Just, it's terrifying. And, and a lot of people have to work and uh, it's a really scary time. You know, it's a really scary time. So. Mm. It feels a little almost like a perfect storm, particularly in the States with, you know, all the political issues that are happening on top of, you know, COVID-19. And I kind of wonder, are you are you seeing the impacts of that in your classes or in the people that are kind of coming to you for help, support? Oh, yeah. And also, you forgot to mention the Sahara dust storm we just had. Right. <laughs> What was that like? Have you experienced that? Because I saw it in the news, but I was like, what? It came right through my town. It was the weirdest thing. I was coughing a little bit. You know, we had this like little haze of, of dust from this. Like, how bizarre is that? It's yeah, such well, a weird. It's biblical. Uh, it's biblical. <laughs> it is. When, when is the swarm of locusts coming to December? Oh, they've gone through Africa, I think, already. Yeah, they're, they're, gonna... they're on their way. <laughs> yes. So, so yes, I definitely have been hurt. You know, a lot of people have reached out to me about dealing with anxiety, depression. Um, a lot of people I'm finding, you know, cause I work with a lot of people in their fifties, sixties, seventies, the one, one big issue is like caregiving stuff, you know, uh, with, with elderly parents not being able to see their parents or their kids not being able to see the elderly parents because they don't want to infect. So there's this, whole sort of, um, I think there's a lot of anxiety, but I also think there's a lot of um, just kind of like relational sadness, you know, of people not being able to be together and touch each other. And I saw something in uh, the news last week about 30% of Americans are dealing with depression and anxiety right now. That sounds about right to me. Hmm. Yeah. And you can't, it's hard to use your social engagement systems if you can't connect. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. So you're, you're, the thing you're thinking about the most or, or talking about is resilience. When you talked about your own resilience and building other people, is that is that what made you um, launch your resilient society? Was that in the wind before or is that just in, impeccable timing? It was really time. So first of all, I changed the tagline of subtle yoga five or six years ago. It used to be. Um, uh, shift perspective because what I was de- what I was doing when I started sh- subtle yoga was trying to help people shift their perspective on yoga f- away from just exercise exercise hot sweat vinyasa blah you know I'm sorry I don't mean to write it off <laughs> like like that's good that's stuff cool. there's nothing wrong with you that you sing it to the know? choir honey it's yeah. okay it's all good yeah. I was trying to help people <laughs> shift their perspective yeah and then five or six years ago so I started working with mental health professionals about 12 years ago and um, I was trying, you know, my husband is a psychotherapist. I got into that world because I wanted to work with clinicians. And also I see a very important inroad into sharing yoga is doing it through the licensed professionals, right? Because I think there's one place for, um, you know, studios and gyms and that's fine. That's that market is largely taken care of. But what I don't see it being being. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't see us taking advantage as much of 
the medical profession and the way that we should be interfacing with them in order to get yoga to people who really need it and maybe don't feel welcome at yoga studios, don't have the money, you know, all those sorts of things, less accessibility. So, so I started to uh, work with behavioral health professionals and then about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I said, you know, I got to change my tagline and settle yoga from shift perspective to build resilience because that's what this work does. It, it really helps us to open the window of tolerance, which is Dan Siegel's model for, um, uh, you know, how you deal with the hyper or hypo arousal in the autonomic nervous system and like, you know, build a capacity to deal with what life brings on. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, I've had a couple of Facebook groups for a while on Facebook and, um, I, right when COVID hit, I was like, okay, my Tuesday in-person class is going to IRL, IRL, as the kids say, apparently in real life class is oh. going to, um, <laughs> is going to go away now. So I need a, uh, I need to, you know, I want to just like keep teaching. So I'll just keep teaching on my, um, Facebook group. And so I did that for about, I don't know, six weeks, pretty regularly. I just taught classes to anybody who wanted to come. And then I realized, okay, well, you know, that's great. And I also need to be compensated for my work. And I also don't, I don't like the model of free yoga for everybody. I think it's deeply problematic Mm. um, because of the way it devalues the profession and the Mm. amount of time and energy and money and years, you know, the three of us have been at this. So Mm. I, I think it's very, I think you have to be very careful. So I was within my exclusive group, I was offering free yoga. And I said, look, this is going to happen because we're in the middle of, of, of this pandemic. And I want to give you some tools for resilience. And then after, you know, X amount of time, I'm going to start a new Facebook group and um, you can join and it's a membership. <clears throat> and so I started the membership uh, at the end of May, I think it started. We started at the very beginning of June. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, it'd be nice. Like maybe a hundred people will sign up right now. There's 439 people in my group. I can't believe it. Like it just exploded because I think there's just, it's such an amazing time for people that like, like any kind of crisis presents an opportunity. And I think the first opportunity it presents, if you're willing to look at it is look at your life and look at yourself. And what are you, what are you doing? Like, why are we running in this rat race all the time? Mm-hmm. You know, what do we need for ourselves? What do, how do we need to um, do self-care and really look at what's valuable and important in our lives so that we can show up for our friends and our families and our communities and our students in a, in a much more present way? And <clears throat> so I just said, you know, like, let's, let's go for it. Let's do it. And I've had a tremendous response. I'm really overwhelmed and and grateful and humbled <laughs> by it so wonderful um, yeah. for, for you and for them and so what are you doing inside the resilience society like what 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 do we get if we have i'm talking like <laughs> join the society about fomo the first order <laughs> well first First of all, I have to say that I say the word society with my tongue in my cheek. I mean, we thought it was hilarious to name it the Subtle Yoga Resilience Society. Like, I was like, maybe I'll get together with my team and we'll all put on like, you know, early 19 or late, uh, late 19th century, like Victorian garb and be in the society (laughs) with like white gloves and, and walking sticks, you know. (laughs) It's like the title of the love 
book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just has this funny feeling to it, but I wanted it to be, you know, have a name that had some fun to it because it, it should be fun, you know? So every Wednesday at nine 30, I do a live stream, nine 30 Eastern, by the way. Mm-hmm. Eastern, mind, I'll turn off Asian. my cell phone now. <laughs> oh, that's a good uh, that's my, my son is texting me from the kitchen. <laughs> you know how that goes. <laughs> um, so every Wednesday morning I do a um, Eastern time. I do a um, some kind of live stream. So the first in the first weekend or the first week of the month, I do a mini workshop on whatever topic we're doing around resilience. Like, like the first unit we did unit is a month. So the first unit we did, um, the neurobiology of resilience. Now we're talking about resilience and, um, movement and the body. Um, so like all those bottom up things, I still talk about neuroscience cause I can't control myself, <laughs> but, um, but it helps people to understand like, you know, what's going on in your body and why your body is so important. And you can't just be like, Oh, I'm going to change my mind and like think happy thoughts and just be resilient. Like that sounds really <laughs> nice, but it doesn't work like that. Like your body has to feel safe. So, um, so anyway, I do like a mini workshop and explain some neurobiology and then we do some asanas and the second Wednesday we do some about half asanas and then half pranayama. And it's a short practice, like maybe 30 or 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. The third Wednesday, same thing. We do half asanas, half meditation, and again, a shorter practice. And then the last Wednesday, I just do a, a whole um, like hour asana practice. So that's what people get. They get like one class a week, but but not only asana. I'm also, you know, bringing in um, pranayama, bringing in meditation. And of course, how do you operationalize ethics? Because that's a mm. key part of uh, yoga. And then, um, and then uh, we have, I also am, giving everybody a journal and a notebook every month. So they get like some key tips from the, or key points from the workshops and then some areas, some questions that they can journal about. And also thinking about taking action steps, proactive action steps that they might want to take in making those changes in their lives. You know, Dinacharya is everything, right? This, the yoga lifestyle. Yeah. It's everything. So um, you know, encouraging that. And then, um, and then we have games and contests. <laughs> now we're talking. Okay. Yeah. So we just had a contest and you had to answer the question. Um, what is, what, um, opportunities came out of the shutdown for you? And then people wrote all these different things and I didn't pick anything based on what people said, because everybody said the most beautiful, profound, you know, transformative, things. And then, um, all all I did was actually, I grabbed that basket over there and my son cut up all the different responses from, we pasted on, printed them out from Facebook. And then we just picked a winner and the winner gets a, um, a one hour coaching call with me or either a yoga therapy session or a coaching call with me. Um, so that was really fun. So we're doing that, you know, something like that every month, next month, we're going to give away those three minute eggs, you know, those, um, those off-long yes. yoga Those blocks. Great. Yeah, they're really nice. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to get get a chance to win, win three-minute eggs. So we're doing, like, fun contests and different – and I do, li- like, at least one Q&A live stream every month. So that's kind of what the society is about. And um, it's so, – it's, 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 Like, it's doing what you need, like, what you wanted to get, get your work out there, but also operationalize some of this stuff, land it. 
Um, I, I hope so. Like, I feel like it's still early in what we've been doing, you know? Um, but I also feel like I'm getting a lot of really positive feedback because one of the main things I wanted to do with this group is give people a safe, supportive community, Mm. you know, where they felt like they were with other people who think like them and have a, well, not entirely, of course, everybody has their own opinion, but, you know, like-minded people Mm. and um, really want to give them an opportunity to self-care. So like, I've got a bunch of people in Western Australia who are in the group and they're together trying to find times to do watch parties because they're exactly 12 hours and nobody wants to practice yoga at 9:30 at night, you know? So they're, (laughs) so they're trying to find good, a good time for a watch party so that they can watch together. And, And that's, that's really what I wanted this group to feel like is people supporting each other, talking about the challenges they're having, whether it's with aging parents or trying to teach online. It's not just yoga teachers, by the way, there's lots of anybody can join it. So it's not just for teachers, but you know, whatever questions are coming up that people have a forum to express themselves and then to feel like they're not going to get that kind of horrible social media, uh, scary stuff that goes on out there, that this Mm. is a very safe place for you to express yourself and receive support. And that's all it's about. Mm. Wow. That sounds terrific. It does. It does. I like the idea of watch parties because I found with people online, a lot of my local people didn't come to my classes, but the ones who did were meeting at each other's house. Like two of them would meet and they'd do it together and then they'd have a cup of coffee or something. Doing it all by themselves at home felt a little lonely. Whereas if you kind of buddy up, you have that group feel and it's that warm, fuzzy feeling. So I had, yeah. Yeah, those watch parties are great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're great, but it's it's such a hard time. I think one of the things that people are really struggling with right now is getting to the mat. You know, like they used to have that class they went to every week, and now it's like, who's holding them accountable? Just stay <laughs> home and have another cup of coffee. Watch YouTube videos, you know? I mean, <laughs> there's so many other things you can do besides practice. Although when this whole thing hit, apparently sales of yoga mats went up, you know, and maybe that was just because those folks who were practicing but were going to a studio where they were using a mat decided to use them at home. I'm sure a lot of those yoga mats that were purchased oh so many months ago have made it to the closet. Right. (laughs) I think every fitness equipment got purchased. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 Just for the home home use. Yeah. I must say, I started teaching again in person this last week, and it was so wonderful mm-hmm. to be distancing. And but the effect, it's such a different feeling to have a human being in the room with you. And also the effect of teaching is so interesting, because when you're teaching online, you've got to talk, 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 talk and do and demonstrate where when I teach, I hardly do anything. I just look at them and, and, and I'm reading them all the time. It was a really different feeling. So, but as the groups develop, and I'm interested, Dashara's in a few groups and, and I've been in, I've developed online. Are you finding as the group develops that you get more of that group feeling, more of that reciprocity? Yeah, some people have become friends in the group, oh. but that was mostly people that transferred from my other group, which has been around for like three or four years now. So those people are already buddies and they've even like started their own little Facebook groups to talk to each other and stuff, which is great. You know, that's what I want. I want people to find 
other people. And then people put like funny memes up and, you know, just funny stuff is always going up there too, in terms of like, Oh, this is what we're all dealing, you know, kind of this idea of like, we're all dealing with this. Let's have a little sense of humor about it because that's important, right? That's an important part of resilience too, is being able to laugh at yourself. I worked in hospice for about five years when I was doing massage therapy and acupressure a long time ago and, um, and yoga. And so I was working in the nursing home doing yoga and stuff and and I worked in hospice and the jokes of the hospice nurses. Oh, my God. You know, you think everybody would walk around all sullen, but they were always saying things like life is a terminal illness, you know, and like, <laughs> they always had some quip for everything. And I thought and if you can be if you can have a sense of humor in the midst of doing such difficult work. Yeah. Like, you know, you're resilient. You can handle anything that life handle that life hands you you know mm-hmm. well now that you went back to hospice maybe we should go back to the early days where we met and what happened because you have such good memories of it because <laughs> christine and i actually went to university together undergrad and and grad school but we really got close in uh, in grad school mm-hmm. i have to okay so this is what i have to say and it might make maria get a little teary but i'm gonna say it oh. anyway that Maria is the person who taught me how to take care of myself. Aww. Like really, I didn't know anything about self-care. You really did. I didn't know anything about self-care as a 22 year old, you know, um, kid. And Maria was like, take baths. And I was like, take a bath. What? Like, I think was and she's like, take baths. It's really relaxing. And she was like, here, I have this eucalyptus. She, we knew she was going to Australia. I mean, that was it. Because she always had like eucalyptus sprigs in her room. She was like, smell this. It smells really good. Isn't it relaxing? And she was like, into, I remember she had this, she had this, I don't know if you remember this, Maria, but she had this like fuzzy blanket. It was like a white furry little skin thing. And she'd be like, I put that on my feet in the winter to keep them warm in bed. And I'd be like, these things yeah Yeah, it was a sheepskin thing that's right so anyway I like so ironic and how little I knew about what I was doing and that I sought you (laughs) self-care but clearly it was all bottom up (laughs) (laughs) totally and then one of the things Maria did was she dragged me to a yoga class in 1989 and I was like, oh, my God, I hope nobody sees me walking into this yoga <laughs> class. How embarrassing. You know, everybody was like doing aerobics in their leotards and Maria's doing yoga. And so we go to this yoga class and there are, you know, there's no yoga mats. It was 1989. There are thick, those thick blue wrestling mats. So we come and sit on the thick blue wrestling mats and there's a real swami. There was a real swami teaching us. Like an Indian Swami. I don't know where the guy came from. <laughs> white clothes, yeah. In white clothes. And there was, and he had a little groupie that was always there, and she was always standing on her head when you came into the yoga class. So I went a few times with Maria. I was still like, you know, this, what does this do for me? I need to exercise so I can lose weight, you know. <laughs> I didn't have a sense that yoga was really, really all that interesting. But, but it was, I remember Maria saying, you know, Yoga is a perfect um, counterpart to academics. Like when you're really, because we we really studied. We, I mean, we read one book and wrote read and wrote a paper for I think every class, just about every week. It was, it was intense. It was a really intense experience. 
Um, and so I remember Maria being like, you got to take care of yourself, got to take baths, got to do yoga. And that was, uh, no, that, that was one of my did change everything though. That, that was, you know, when you, I try and explain Vinyana Maya Kosha to people, it's like, how do you access your deep intelligence and your witness? And, and, and I don't know why I went to that yoga class, but something deep in me, like I was, it was almost just dragged me there. I was like, no, this is important. I don't even know why. But I need to be, uh, well, probably because you've been doing this for many lifetimes, Maria. Yes, that's exactly. But I was exactly. introduced. Actually, I was introduced to yoga by my sixth grade social studies teacher who mm-hmm. um, was a hippie and she wore long fluid, fluid, like flowy skirts. Her name was Miss Gale. And she wore something that looked like Birkenstocks, but they probably weren't because it was probably before Birkenstocks. But it was around that time. And she did yoga with us every Wednesday. And everybody made fun of it, but I will never forget being 12 years old and lying in Shavasana and having a really trippy, like out of body experience. And I was like, this is interesting stuff. (laughs) I I still use some of the, um, some of the uh, relaxation script that she used. I still hear that in my head when I'm trying to sleep. sleeping. Yeah. It really stuck in there. But um, but I didn't really get in. And then I moved to San Francisco. I did yoga out there. I did acu yoga. I was studying like like acupressure and massage. Okay. And we did yoga. And it, it's still there was only like the Iyengar Institute then. Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't know. Was Rodney Yee doing his thing then? I don't even think he was around then. Might have been. <clears throat> yeah, it was it was early. There wasn't a lot. And when I was in Asia, so I moved to Asia from 1991 or 92 to 96. And that's when the yoga thing started to take off in the States. But I was doing yoga. I remember going to yoga in Tokyo with a woman. I did not understand what she was saying, but um, but I did yoga in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> so when did it go from being kind of the physical practice and doing whatever? When did you tap into subtle? And, and when did that? Because I remember visiting you when you were teaching at the hospice and watching your practice. You got up in the morning. I was kind of sleeping over and I just watched Christine get up in the morning and do her practice. And it was very slow, very breath centered. And I was like, Ooh, this is cool. So it must've been at that point that you transitioned and it was really in the service of meditation for you. Well, yeah, I never did. I was never a, um, like a power yoga person. Mm -hmm. I never, I got into yoga much more because of meditation. You know, so when I was in India, I met meditation. Well, I met meditation teachers in Japan, but when I was in India, I spent a lot of time at ashrams and studied a lot of meditation. Spent hours and hours. I was I would meditate in these what they called tantra pits, which are these um, areas that are, you know the legend says that people meditated there for thousands of years. You know, so I'd go meditate at these things. I would meditate for like three hours sometimes. I was so into it. I went to Bodh Gaya just so I could like sit under the Bodhi tree and meditate. So I was really, really into meditation. And uh, when I got back, I remember get, coming back to the States and being like, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. And I wanted and I went to massage school. Well, I had already gone, but I went back to massage school and um, I studied homeopathy at that time, too. It was in the late 90s. And then I and I started teaching yoga in like 95 um, because I didn't know what else to do with myself. I wanted to teach, you know, I wanted to kind of teach meditation, but nobody was interested. So then I was like, I can figure out how to teach yoga. It's not rocket science. You know, I was, <laughs> I was, um, I was doing, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, 
Um, of course, I learned much more afterwards, you know, but I, I took a few workshops and I was like, I can teach. Because um, no, but there wasn't teacher training in 1995. No. You know, except Iyengar. Mm-hmm. Iyengar was doing it. And that I was just like, run the other way because <laughs> it was so not me, you know. Not, not with deepest respect to uh, BKS. It just was not my not my thing. So, you know, but what happened was I moved to Asheville in 2001. And Asheville is like, well, let me say it this way. Deva Pramal was here about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And she was up on the stage and she said, you know, I just came from Byron Bay in Australia. <laughs> and Asheville is just like Byron Bay. So, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, interesting. So Asheville and Byron Bay, apparently very similar places. It's it's the hippie capital of the Southeast, you know, and yeah. the alternative capital of the Southeast. And so I got I landed here in 2001. And I was like, oh, I'll just, you know, make a flyer and I'll go put it up on the uh, at the co-op and people will come to my yoga classes Little did I know that's not how things worked in Asheville. I got to my yoga class and nobody came, you know. And I realized, like, there were these yoga centers that were really doing all this hot, fast, sweaty vinyasa stuff and the gyms. And, and I was shocked. Like, I nobody showed up for my classes. Nobody was interested in what I was doing. And so I just started, like, teaching at the Y. And I was like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. I guess I better learn how to teach this sun salute stuff and Again, it's not rocket science, so I figured it out. And um, and then it was a couple of years after that. It was maybe 2003. It was raining one day. I was, go- I was going to teach at the YWCA, and it was raining. And there were only, like, maybe five students in the class. And one of them, I said, what do you want to do today? And one of them said, um, can we do what you do at home? <laughs> Which is the practice Maria was talking about, you know, mm-hmm. slow stuff. So I was like, you want to do what I do? Really? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, okay. So I just took them through like my home practice. And at the end, one of them said, could we do that every week? (laughs) (laughs) And then I was like, I guess I'm supposed to be teaching what I do and not what I think people want, you know, Mm -hmm. so I kind of changed my mind then. And then uh, very quickly, people started asking me to teach workshops in su- in the subtle practices. And I was like, well, you know, they asked me what it was. And I was like, well, it's subtle yoga. It's, mm. it's subtle. It's not, you know, exercise yoga. It's in internal, it's inner size yoga. I started that, using that a lot. Was that something that you were taught or was that something that just evolved over the years? For you? No, I would say like, the, okay. So you remember the Hatha yoga of yeah. the eighties, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, I had learned some of that stuff. And then when I was in India, my Bengali teachers taught these very slow, repeated practices. When I got to the States in 1995, I found Vini Yoga. Uh, And Vini Yoga, I was like, that's just like what my Bengali teachers taught. There were little breath pauses here and there. You repeat the poses, you know, you get all that PNF from repeating the poses. And, and, uh, and it just felt like that's what my body wanted to do, you know. Mm. So, so yeah, it evolved in the sense of like I've studied a lot of Qigong and Feldenkrais and and those sorts of things that work their way into what I teach for sure. But I would say the foundation of what I teach is Vinny Yoga, and and I did I have studied with Gary Craftso. He's mm-hmm. one of my 
teachers. I still study with him. He's one of my main teachers, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not exactly mini yoga. It, there's I, I add lots of other things because I was studying a lot of yoga before I even met Gary. I mean, I think I met him when he had a, the brain tumor. I actually met Mirka, his wife, first. Mm-hmm. It was like around 2003. And but then I started taking a lot of workshops with Gary and I finally finished his training like and finally in like 2014 or something because I didn't want to leave my son. You know, you had to go for like two weeks at a time. <laughs> I was like, I'm not leaving my little baby that long. <laughs> took me a while to finish up studying with him. But in the meanwhile, you know, I'd been doing lots of other stuff. Hmm. And I think I think what I think is has happened is that there's been a maturation of the yoga community. Yep. And people, first of all, they're realizing, okay, my goals as a 22-year-old, you know, are different than my goals as a 45-year-old. And that's one thing. Um, Another thing that's happened is, of course, the uh, widespread repetitive strain injury. Exactly. You know, and the SI joint problems and the rotator cuff problems. That's another widespread issue. So I think that's another factor. And then the third thing is the, the emotional maturation and Mm -hmm. this feeling of like, I hit a glass ceiling with my asanas. Like, is that all there is to yoga? I want Mm -hmm. more. Mm-hmm. And I think I think those sort of factors have have been very influential in why people are paying attention to what I teach now. When before it was like you know, whatever, you know. But I think those I think those are key factors. And and I don't think I'm the only person in the space. Obviously, you both are in that space. There's I think there's many yoga. I think it, like it's very interesting to watch how Donna Ferry's work has evolved. Yeah. Over the years. She's not hardcore anger anymore. She kind of I was watching her. I was like. She teaches a little bit like me. (laughs) "Hmm, That's interesting. So it's interesting to watch some of the teachers and how they've evolved and they've realized, oh, maybe I don't just have to like give people the hardest workout anymore or maximize the stretch or, you know, and then all, of course, all the information we're getting about the fascia research and Mm -hmm. we we don't stretch. We know that now, like, please don't stretch. (laughs) You can get more mobile, but you don't want to stretch. Like there's things like that that we're starting to understand that I think all of those factors are leading into people wanting to slow down and to use these perennial, this perennial wisdom for what it was meant to be used for, which is getting to know yourself, not losing weight or getting a good butt or whatever, you know? But to get to understand yourself, to come home to yourself, to be present with yourself and and therefore to have a deeper sense of identity, a deeper sense of meaning and purpose and be able to, you know, live your life with more authenticity and and self-actualize. And that is the promise of yoga. And that's what it will give you if you if you decide to explore all the limbs and not just stay stuck in sort of this fitness, weird fitness thing. Mm. <laughs> so so what's the entry level to that? Like how do you, because I always see myself, I kind of imagine myself standing at the doorway in the mall next to McDonald's with kind of a yoga door. And I want to be inviting enough to get those people in. And I, you know, I mean, if you can eat what you want, I don't care. But, but, um, <laughs> but where people think yoga is weird and yoga is, or it's exercise how do we create an entry level experience that taps into exactly what you were talking about? Is that, is that getting to know yourself, that deep resilience in your nervous system, that coming home? Yeah. 
Um, I, you know, I think there's lots of approaches. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's lots of approaches and that's one of the reasons I work with behavioral health professionals Yeah, is because I want them to introduce it. I want Mm. the psychotherapist to introduce it like, Hey, I'm your psychotherapist. I'm trying to help you improve your depression or whatever. Yeah. And if you do this, like five, here's a little five minute thing you could do. And I want you to do that as homework every week and then come back and see, you know, and then I hope that they go, Oh, is there like, could I go to do this with somebody else? And then the psychotherapist goes, yes, there's this woman, Maria Kirsten, you could go and take her class. And, you know, I, I think that they're they, like priming people for yoga is really important. Mm. Um, and then people like you, Maria, and 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 it's Shara, right? Shara, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You got it. I want to pronounce your name like Chakra. So I'm sorry, Shara. That's <laughs> okay. Everyone does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so and and Shara, you know, I understand that you're I don't know you that well, but I understand that you are a really deep Ayurvedic practitioner. I mean. You folks are like masters of your craft and you're in this um, time in your life where you've had decades of experience and you have this these gems to offer people. But people can't see the gems if they haven't been introduced to them somehow in a safer way, you know, uh, in a way that feels like it's meeting them where they're at. And I'm not convinced that um, master uh, practitioners are necessarily the best doorway for everybody. I mean, it's okay not to be the best teacher for everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think when students are primed and they're ready, then they step into an experience like with either of you and they go really deep, really fast because they've been primed for it, been prepped for it. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes if it's just going to the Y or whatever, the gym or going to a psychotherapist or even at the doctor's office, watching a video, you know, watching yoga with yoga with Adrian. She's a great doorway for folks, Mm -hmm. you know, then then they can come into the deeper practices and the more and the masterful teachers. You know, there's not a lot of masterful teachers on YouTube. Sorry, it's true. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of there's a lot of people that have been, te- you know, teaching two or three years and figured out how to um, work social media. Mm. But yeah. they serve a function. They serve a purpose, which is getting people to go, oh, I could do this practice. And you do that practice long enough, you know, and something starts to shift and you become curious. What I love about your work is that and it's inspired me a lot. This, the reason I went and studied OT is to uh, occupational therapy is that you have really wanted to interface with um, not, what do you call the normal medicine? (laughs) (laughs) Allopathic or exactly. And I know Shari, you think about that too, that, that idea, because I think we have to speak the language of health in order, in order also to within your networks to be, have physios, psychologists, GPs, refer to you and see you as part of the team in your towns. And I think that it's a really important part maybe of teacher training for some of the newer teachers to, to learn this language and navigate it. That's how have you done that? Yeah. I think that when we start thinking like that, we, we expand our capacity and we expand the possibilities, right? Because how many times have you heard, 
people say, oh, I'll never do yoga teacher training because there's already, it's a glut. You know, there's too many yoga teachers. You hear that all the time. And I completely disagree with that. I think there's too many yoga teachers that are trained as fitness people, mm. fitness professionals. I think there's way too many of those people. Yeah. But yoga teachers that are trained as wellness professionals yeah. and who understand how to interface with allied health, um, behavioral health, mental health, uh, uh, primary care, OT, PT, whatever, um, there's not a, uh, a large amount of teachers who understand how to do that, you know, mm-hmm. or who, who even think that that's a possibility, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think it's very possible and I think that's where we're moving. And in fact, I think that, you know, yoga provides some very important answers to the healthcare crisis, at least the healthcare crisis that we're facing in the United States. But I understand it's not dissimilar from at least the poor health that you have in Australia and the poor health in countries like England. Uh, those are healthcare crises, even though they, you know, the healthcare systems are better. Mm. They still have a lot of sick people, a lot of chronically ill people. Mm. And I think yoga provides a very important answer that needs to be looked at a lot more seriously. No. Yeah, I agree. And the whole world is catching up to all the things that are happening in the States the whole world is catching up to it. And and what I'm seeing, at least, I love that we're having this conversation because I think it I do think of the yoga. Uh, I do think of yoga and yoga teachers as being this front line. You know, even before you get to, you know, the doctor, even before you have to show up at the doctor because you've had one thing or the other, there's this opportunity for the yoga teachers if they're if they're well enough trained or if they at least have an understanding about to help students to understand how to prevent issues. And, you know, I, I do think, like you were saying, Christine, I don't, I do think that a, the teachers aren't necessarily being trained to do that. And so there's a really big opportunity there. But the other thing just, and I kind of wanted to, to get the sense for your thoughts about this, Christine, is one thing that I'm certainly so, starting to see as I dig deeper into um <clears throat> What's really at the root of a lot of our health and wellness issues is I'm seeing this. I'm seeing the yoga philosophy. I'm seeing that the mind, seeing people's real struggle, internal struggles with themselves. And I often say that what we're looking at, or what was, seems like we're dealing with, is really uh, a crisis of, for lack of a better word, self-loathing. We don't kind of love ourselves enough, and so we're just in this, you know, kind of mental swirl. And when I think about subtle yoga, I think, oh. This is this seems so perfect for slowing us down to the place where we can gain some access to some of that mental and emotional stuff. Is there an aspect of that in it for you? Oh, yes. I mean, that's that's key for me is this yeah. self-compassion, self-care, self-compassion, yep. self-love, uh, you know, getting to know yourself. All of those things I talk about all the time when yeah. I'm teaching. And I think when you have these subtle breath-centered practices, it's just like filling yourself up with an opportunity for just complete sort of indulgence mm-hmm. in the sensations in your body, you know, that just open you up to this amazing potential, that endogenous potential that we have for um, for uh, not only self-care, but for self-love, for for good feelings. You know, I think about our culture, my God, our culture is so set up for you to numb out the bad feelings in you. 
and you get to numb them out by buying more stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, buy more stuff, go shopping, eat more, drink more, use drugs, get a new cell phone, whatever it is, it's all external. And yet everything that you need to quell those unpleasant feelings that you have largely because of the culture um, is right inside of you. You know, it's, it's a revolutionary practice to, um, to stop and go inside and pay attention and listen to all the beauty that's inside of yourself and realize you don't need all that crap. Mm. (laughs) You know, it's capitalism is really kind of deadly for people. You know, I mean, it's the, it's the economic structure that we're in, you know, stuck in it. But, uh, and, and I don't, I think yoga teachers should leverage it to get yoga out there because you can use capitalism to just, fling it out there, you yeah. know, get it to more people. We should use it for those reasons. There's very well-known tools of marketing that work. Um, and, you know, that being said, then give people what they need because they don't need more stuff. You know, they need more of this opportunity to really tune into themselves. And there's all that work from, uh, there's all that research from Kristen Neff mm-hmm. on the the value, yeah, the value of uh, self-compassion, so much more important for kids and self-esteem. And how do you embody self-compassion? That's the question. That's my question for all of these wonderful psychotherapists who have these great theories that largely live in the cognitive realm. Yeah. Is, uh, okay, how do you embody that? <laughs> you know, come do yoga with me and then yes. we'll embody that stuff, you know. <sighs> And I think, you know, I think um, I, I mean, I've heard it with Bessel van der Kolk or, or some other people where there's a resistance to it because the practitioners themselves don't want to deal with their own stuff. Because a huge part of so there's resistance on the part of students where there's been trauma or discomfort. It's not just that easy to get into. And you've, you've done some wonderful work. So I'd love you to talk about that. But also, I think there's resistance on the part of maybe health professionals because they've numbed themselves out to get through medical school or whatever. You have to deal with your own stuff before you offer this stuff. So that can also mm-hmm. be another barrier. Yeah, and that's a really good mm. point. You know, I think one of the things that really came out of the Black Lives Matter movement this these past couple of months is the idea of the systems of racism, right? Mm. And the systems of racism are unfortunately, you know, uh, toxically uh, intertwined with the systems of trauma. Hmm. You know, we live in a in traumatic systems, and the medical system is deeply traumatizing. Yep. Not only to people that go through the system, but to the the practitioners themselves. I'm yeah. going to medical school. It's like being tortured. You know, mm-hmm. I know you know people who've gone through med school. And it's like you might as well get tortured for eight years. <laughs> Keep them up late. You know, I mean, it's it's an insane approach to health and wellness. And we start to pick that stuff apart and look at the big picture and offer, you know, offer clinicians some self-care. By the way, that's a thing right now. This yeah. clinician self-care thing is is huge. Like people are starting to talk about it, at least, even though they don't have a clue what they're doing about it. But at least they're starting to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and when clinicians start taking care of themselves, that will necessarily um, start to shift the way that they do health. And 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 so trauma-informed best practices are starting to become implemented across the spectrum of healthcare. It's so important. And, um, and I think yoga professionals are some of the best people to teach, you know, 
to start to teach what this self-care could actually be, you know, mm. beyond Netflix and wine. What is, <laughs> you know? And a mani-pedi. <laughs> right. And a mani-pedi. What is real self-care? And self-care is something that arises, you know, I talk about this when I talk about, when I teach about the heart chakra, because the heart chakra is, has so much to do about self-care and good boundaries. And, and uh, you know, until you are um, <clears throat> uh, really clear with uh, that, you know, really clear about what you need and you start to create the discipline that's essential for making that self-care happen, then self-care is just this elusive thing that remains, you know, far away, something that somebody else does. Mm-hmm. That's yoga with Adrian does. That's not what I do, you know. It's, yeah. it's something far away from us. So freedom comes through that discipline of practice. And that's a hard thing for people to get, particularly in the Western world. I think when I lived in Asia, like people are disciplined. Yeah, it's what everybody does. Mm-hmm. Nobody questions it. It's part of the Asian culture. But the Western culture, we we don't like authority. We don't like people telling us what to do. And and so, you know, to even telling ourselves what to do. So how do we cultivate with self-compassion the discipline in our lives to create a habit out of practice, like a habit out of brushing your teeth? Like it's that easy uh, that your practice is that easy and not essential in your life and your life. And then you start to reap the freedom that that affords. Like the freedom is the freedom is the result of creating that discipline. And that's an oxymoron. That's a little difficult for the Western mind to understand, I think. Mm. But it feels like we're going in circles. And until we get exactly what you've just said, until we get that, there's going to be umpteen, you know, new diets and new health care, this and new workout, that and new answers to blah, blah, blah. And we're just going to keep going the same you're just going to go around in circles and circles. And, and I love that you've said that because I really think that's something important for people to hear. It's mm-hmm. we've got to get to the bottom of what is keeping us from being disciplined. That, mm-hmm. di- that discipline, whatever it is, we got to That's where we got to go first. Mm-hmm. In, and, in and, and like reframe it. it doesn't have to be called discipline. Yeah. Call it something else. Call it a healthy habit, if you like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Passion. I mean, brushing your teeth is such a perfect example because none of us would not do that. And it's so ingrained. Yeah. And it was, but you, your parents had to tell you to do it at a young age because you tried to skip it when you were little. Yeah. <laughs> I also find that people are blocked though. I think, I think um, maybe, I don't, I think maybe, you know, when you're trying to give people a home practice, I, I don't know whether we're teaching as, as a group of teachers, teaching people to practice at home enough. Because if you bang through something for an hour and a half, um, I guess in a slower, repetitive, breath-centered way, that's great. But still people start to conceive of home practice as doing something for an hour and a half or, or 60 minutes or something like that. And I think for, I don't know what your practices look like at home, but mine often looks like 15 20 to 20 minutes, possibly half an hour. Yeah. 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 And Oh, I set the bar really low. I tell everybody, set the bar low. One asana. Yeah. And one asana in the morning. And then you'll see what happens after you do that one pose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's really important to and I think I think we have to teach teachers if we're teacher trainers or be or teach our students almost teach our own redundancy as teachers and start to cue people in what is your favorite pose or sequence of poses. I love the breath centered thing because one asana actually turns into six repetitions so that mm-hmm. a little more out of it. But um can you do that at home once a day and you've done your yoga? Yeah, exactly. 
And in a way, and then it isn't because I've been teaching a little bit for mental health, like had it on my mind. And I know you've done so much behavioral health. As soon as you talk mental health with people, they're all like running for the door because nobody wants to talk about their mental health straight away. And I yeah. think it's quite an imposition, although it very much becomes part of the mind and, and, and that realm. We've got we've to introduce people to themselves in a safe way. And you've talked about that in the past, Christine. I wonder if you could talk about that more, what you do when people hit those obstacles, like even in your 30-day pranayama challenge, which is one of my favorite things that you have online, and I recommend everybody go do, because it's brilliant. Just those obstacles, often breathing for people is difficult, and they get yeah. very confronted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you teach people to overcome that, or is it a one-to-one basis, or... Um, so you mean like, how do you teach people to overcome the obstacles that keep them from practicing at home? Is that kind of what you mean? Practicing, And then when they hit that, like discomfort or panic, or sometimes when we just do breathing with people or sitting with people, some of the subtler practices, more the top down practices, let's say, or the stay still practices start to make people want to jump out of their skin. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So we have to titrate the experience. Mm. So people get to dip their toes in. I mean, because anybody who's jumping out of their skin, from my perspective, Mm -hmm. has trauma that's not integrated. Mm -hmm. Not able to be still. There's some unintegrated trauma. And I'm sorry if that sounds like a blanket statement, but that's just been my experience watching people, you know. And, you know, it also has to do with their constitution. They may be just naturally a little more vata and flitting around, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. But even vatas can learn to meditate, you know. So, so and it's good for them. It helps mm. them to settle and be more creative. But, um, it, you know, I think the thing is that that when I, when I work with somebody, I'm thinking of, like, the most extreme case that I worked with, which was this guy who was a Vietnam vet. And to mediate, to mitigate the feelings that he had that I don't think were conscious, I think they were just sensations that he mm. intolerable, he went to the gym twice a day. Mm. Um, and he was in his 60s and he had a double knee replacement. He could hardly move his knees because he just chewed his body up from going to the gym twice a day since he got mm. back from Vietnam. Like, it, he that was how he was mediating, you know, and mitigating those um, uncomfortable feelings. So this is distress tolerance, right? We how do we tolerate being uncomfortable in our bodies and how long can we tolerate that? Mm. So when we talk to people about doing slow, mindful practices, like I am fully aware that many people do not want to do subtle yoga or slow, mindful yoga, you know. I'm fully aware of that. And so when people come in, they're like, I've heard you're a really good teacher and this is a really good, this is going to be really good for my stress, but I really don't like slow yoga. And I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> so when you come to my class, feel free to like look around the room and space out. I don't care. And do something else and do a bunch of jumping jacks or do, you know, uh, do 10 sun salutations while we're doing this because I'm fine with that actually. You know, and I know that you need to work some of those stress hormones out. And then after you've done that and you feel a little bit calmer, could you just dip your toes in the sensations in your body? And if you find something uncomfortable, how long can you stay there on a scale of zero to 10 
And when you get to a six or a seven, back off and do something else. How long can you stay there and be okay with it? Because every time you come back and you dip your toes in this pool, you're going to go a little deeper in. You're going to go a little deeper until every time you come, you're going to want to immerse your whole body in the sensation, you know, experience. And you're going to be like, wow, it took me a while to get here, but it feels so good. And when I map it out like that for people, and I, and I also, you know, throw in some neuroscience. <laughs> because yeah, that they'll listen. People. Yeah. <laughs> It helps people to listen. I'm like, yeah. this is really good for your insular cortex. You know? <laughs> and it's going to help improve your vagal tone. And we know poor vagal tones associated with all sorts of chronic disease. I'll see stuff like that, you know, not too much, but give them a little taste of that. And then, and then they trust me. And then they're like, okay, so when, when I, I trust that what's going to happen is okay. Now being, that being said, that doesn't mean everybody, it's for everybody. It still isn't for everybody, you know? Yeah. And they maybe need to do other things. I've had people come, I'm sure you both have had these experiences. I've had people come to me, yoga teachers, and say, I remember when I went to your class 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and I thought, what a waste of time. This is doing nothing for me. And now I'm ready for it. Because sometimes it's just this maturation that happens for people and from all sorts of different reasons, you know, and they're either ready to integrate their trauma or they're ready to go inside or they're ready to they're some they had some kind of life experience that makes them feel compelled to look for something deeper in yoga you know those sorts of things happen so i you know one thing i tell all my students is popular and good are almost never the same thing like mm-hmm. if you want a really good hamburger you're not going to mcdonald's mm-hmm. you know so <laughs> <laughs> you can find it i, I so, love what you just described i i like so much because um <clears throat> It, it reframes what the work is and the work is like when you sit and meditate, the work is not to have this perfect meditation practice, but every time you come back, you walk yourself back, you're like, whoops. And you walk back. That's the actual work. And yeah. so the idea of, of, you know, dipping in and dipping out and doing it consciously and doing it attuning to what you need. That's the work. If nobody's timing you, nobody does it. But just knowing what you need and how long you need it and, and, and calibrating for yourself, you get an A. You've done it. So you don't, it doesn't have to be that you sat for ages or did that many poses. Mm-hmm. It's a nice reading. And you don't need the permission of the teacher. And that's why yeah. you know, yoga teachers need to learn to teach in a way that's saying, hey, I'm going to accommodate whatever you need today. Because the last thing I want is someone to leave my class feeling dysregulated. Mm-hmm. You know, feeling like, oh, that was, oh, I feel awful in my body because the yoga teacher made me do these things. I didn't really want it. Like, I don't want people to leave my class like that. Mm-hmm. I want them to leave with a sense of agency, a sense of yes. like, oh, I accomplished something and that felt really good. And I did, and nobody made me feel shameful for doing what I needed to do in there. And, you know, we need a lot more yoga teaching like that, I think. Yeah. Oh. So true. One thing I've, I've I've been thinking a little bit about as we're having this conversation, which is just so juicy to me, I just have to tell you, ladies, I'm like loving everything you're saying, um, is to me that the it and I the subtle the subtle world to me feels almost like the if you think about the ocean. Above the water line, there's a whole world with activity and things that you can see and experience. And then below the water line, there's a whole nother world that you can see and you can experience as well. And I often think that people think of subtle as just, I'm not going to feel anything. Like there's nothing. 
because they're so used to the way that things work above the waterline that they can't even conceive of thing, the way things are working below. And I wonder, well, one question that I had is who's coming to your class, Christine? Are these people who are who ha- are burned out, who are like, I can't do anything else, so I'm just going to come and like do something slow? Are there people who are in- curious about what's below the line and what it can give them access to? I just, I kind of just wonder. Well, first of all, I love that metaphor. Yeah. It's so perfect. And I also love the frog eye part of that yeah. metaphor, which is like the frog can see below and above the yeah. water line, you know, <laughs> because I think you need to be able to see both. Um, but, but I was going to, um, just, just to follow up on that. I mean, I, I used to work with people and I felt like we all felt like losers together, you know. Used to be like, okay, we're the ones who can't do the real yoga, so we'll do this, you know, stuff. And I didn't, and part of that was I just had no understanding of the neurobiology behind what I was doing and the benefits. Yeah. As I started to really dig in and teach myself this stuff and go to workshops, and I mean, I took plenty of, plenty of workshops and read lots of books. Um, as I started to teach myself this stuff, I realized, oh, everybody needs this. This is not just for old sick people. This is for everybody. And as I started to have that confidence and be able to share it, everybody comes to my classes now. Like I get the hot vinyasa teacher and I get older people and I get their kids, bring their kids sometimes. And so people, people come to my classes now. And I think it's, you know, I mean, you know, after you've been teaching for 25 years, it's like you have a few things to say. Yeah. (laughs) You have course, don't you? A couple of my students have done your neurobiology. It's an online course. Neuro, what is it? The neurobiology of resilience, or uh, it's actually called the Yoga and Neuroscience Connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you're really Christine, the first one, the first person who ever taught me about polyvagal theory. She's got this Viva Las Vegas kind of thing. Viva Las Vegas. What I love about your approach, and I've completely imitated in my own course and in my own thing, is it's really empowering for particularly the Western mind maybe to learn the neuroscience, the neurobiology, and it doesn't have to be an incredibly heavy way. Yeah. But when you have that understanding of what's going on, there's a little more buy-in and and willingness to submit to the process. I agree. Mm. Yeah. I think yeah. people like science. They go, oh, yeah, it's scientific. Good. And and by the way, you know, that little comment I meant, we all felt like we were losers together, you know, because you thought like, oh, like lying around on the rolling around on the floor. Or And by the way, that's not all I do. I teach plenty of standing gospels, but, you know, this sort of more gentle yoga. And I and I always like kind of cringe when people call what I do gentle yoga because it's not it's subtle. It's different than gentle. sometimes it can be quite strong. But um, but anyway, the the you know, I, I think. I think there's this feeling in Western people um, of like, if I'm not, you know, if no pain, no gain, if mm-hmm. I'm not really working it, there's nothing good that's happening for me. So when I started, I started discovering this stuff, I was like, oh, yes, there is. And in fact, like, you know, I can show research that says exercise almost does. I've, I've seen research studies that say exercise does nothing for weight loss, zero. Mm, I've seen that. And there are studies that say 
active relaxation practices like restorative yoga will help you lose weight because it cuts, cuts down um, the cortisol in the system and it helps the HPA axis to function better. You know, you tell people stuff like that and they're like running to your class. <laughs> Did you say lose weight? It's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's great. I'm there. You know. It's funny so, because you came to it in one direction and I feel like I came to it in another direction, sort of more from an anatomical thing, but starting on the floor, getting people to warm up their joints and coming into it. But whenever I tried to start from a different way, everyone was like jittery horses. It's like they hadn't gotten into their body and settled down. And, and I know, you know, it's an interesting thing to come to, but when people can center and find that there's this palpable sense of them resonating and, and, you just see that face on them that that is like they're centered and and they have that agency as well yeah mm. yeah and they've tapped into those interoceptive circuits which are parasympathetic i mean they're doing something actually you know they're they're doing some actual shifting in the nervous system in those moments and when they can understand that then mm. they start to see it's not just you know it's not just yoga for wimps there's actually something really powerful here yeah. And they may even be able to see it working in their lives. I mean, that's the that's the big deal, really, is they go and they're not yelling at their kids or, you know, or aggravated with the car next to them or whatever happens. You know, that's kind of the ultimate. It is. Yeah, that's it the is. litmus test, right? Does it make you a nicer person? Then it's good yoga. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is good yoga. It is good yoga. <laughs> Cool. So what next? I feel like I, I don't want to I, I don't want to take too much of your time. I don't know what your what your schedule is like, but it's I can see the sun starting. To, it does it getting dark behind you. Oh, can you see? Yeah. In the window. So you I have a nice view of the rolling Appalachian Mountains out my my window here. Um, yeah, it's starting to get dark and I probably should eat something. But um, <laughs> so what's ahead? Like, where do you yeah. see it all going? Because I know you're a big picture person. You're always working on the next thing. <laughs> um, I have a bunch of different ideas, but, you know, I mean, with COVID, it's sort of like, well, throw all that out the window and see what, what it makes. You know, I mean, who knows what's going to happen. But I have, like, last year, I spent a little time on Capitol Hill talking to um, uh, policymakers and their staff about the importance of yoga and folding that somehow into the Affordable Care Act, which, you know, the Affordable Care Act is just about to, like, fall like a house of cards any mm. second you know so who knows what's going to happen but there are really good people I mean there's so many really good people working in healthcare on pol on bigger policy levels I spent some time talking to a um, consultant when I was in Los Angeles uh, over the Christmas break and I spent some time talking to a healthcare consultant for Kaiser Permanente, and she was like, what you are doing is the cutting edge, and this is where we're going with healthcare. You know, it was really inspiring. So I see myself, like, working on a policy level at some point, eventually, maybe, but who knows? I mean, Amazing. I might just be, like, you know, doing too many online, <laughs> online <laughs> society things. I don't know. No, who knows? Like, but but that's where I feel my heart is is drawn towards is how to reach people who may not show up for a yoga class, you know, mm. and how to how to really get this message out in a bigger way because I do think we have something so powerful, so powerful to share, and 
And so, you know, when people get when people get a little taste of it, it can really transform their lives. So how do we make it more accessible? You know, I think those are questions. Those are questions I think about a lot. So I don't know what the answer is, but I kind of have a feeling where things are going. Well, I think I think you're I think all of us are trying to offer yoga teachers. I know I know that's we sort of thought our audience is existing yoga teachers who want to expand their capacity and thinking of, of themselves as agents for public health, mm-hmm. you know, agents to support that, I think is a really a different perspective than an exercise offerer. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. And gives a whole different level of, of training or perspective on where they're going. Um, and even different is just sort of say yoga therapy or, um, you know, doing another yin or another this or that, but to get that perspective of, of being, yeah. I mean, how would you talk about public health? Maybe for people who don't understand what public health is. (laughs) Yeah, I actually, I talk about it a lot um, in all my trainings. So, um, you know, I, I, first of all, you have to frame the problem and the problem is, you know, I'll talk about the United States for a moment, but the problem is, uh, 90% of the $3.6 trillion that gets spent every year in this country on healthcare goes to chronic, chronic, largely preventable diseases, Mm -hmm. you know, heart disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome stuff, um, uh, lung, lung, uh, COPD stuff. And, and, uh, and then some kinds of some, some forms of cancer. Um, so, you know, you've got 90% of the healthcare dollars going to try to um, keep people healthy, which it's just so backwards, you know, and, and, you know, Congress approved $15 billion for prevention over 10 years. That's like nothing. And every year the they come by and they take half of it away and stick it in healthcare because they, <laughs> they have to steal money from everybody's you know, sick. Everybody's sick. Everybody's sick. It's such a sick culture, you know? So I think first of all, you have to look at the problem. That's a big problem. And mm. You know, if and the thing is, when you have problems that show up in the real world, the the problems typically are arising from defective conceptual models. You know, so our defective conceptual model is the 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 bio bio um, the biomedical model, right? Mm-hmm. Which says like you're basically a car, and if you have some problems, we'll exchange a part or we'll put a little more fluid in it, you know, and fix it. Mm. And so it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what human beings are. And that's where the conceptual model arises from. So until you start to help people, and by the way, those conceptual models aren't going to change until people have an inner experience of that shift. So they have to have this inner experience like, I am not a car. How interesting. I was a car and I'm not. I'm a body and I'm a mind, I'm a spirit. All of those things have to be nurtured and cared for. So, you know, that I, at first I start with the problem. Then I talk about the conceptual models. And then I talk about how, you know, yoga offers not just, you know, the yoga therapists bless their hearts, as we say in the South, I'm a yoga therapist, but, you know, it's um, the yoga therapists are really hyper-focused on treatment. And mm-hmm. that part of the reason is because that's where you can get money. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're like a yoga therapist who specializes in can't, you know, yoga for cancer, people who are going through chemo or whatever, which is a beautiful thing to be. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, there's a chance you can get some reimbursement for that somehow in the system. 
Whereas prevention, there's no money for prevention. Health promotion, well, there's no money for health promotion. And we call it wellness anyway, and we handle it in the private sector, mm-hmm. which is very unfortunate. I think the numbers are around $700 billion a year, which is significant, gets spent on wellness, but that's in the private sector. What about all these people mm-hmm. that don't have good health care, don't have money? You know, They're not getting the treatment ahead of time, you know? And we have to go into schools. We have to get people in their institutions and particularly, and we have to work with prenatal moms too. Mm. It's prenatal yoga is not something for like white women with too much time on their hands in the suburbs. <laughs> you know, it's a public health strategy yeah. to help these moms regulate their nervous system so that because the development of the nervous system of the baby is happening in utero. If the mom is stressed, the baby's going to develop with less stress resilience, right? Less stress resistance and less resilience. So we have to think about kids yoga as not just like, you know, for bored suburban white kids, but for everybody. And we have to, or, you know, overscheduled suburban white kids, I should say. (laughs) Think about it for, for all children, all moms, you know, prenatal yoga for all moms. Um, uh, and, and then, and, and institutionalizing these practices. And when that starts to happen, then we're going to see changes in the population, health of the population, uh, 10, 20, 30 years down the track. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're really going to have an effect on public health. And I'm not the only person who talks about this. Obviously there's lots of, lots of people with PhDs and working in universities who are thinking like this too, which is really exciting, I think. So maybe we have to take the word yoga out of it and call it mindfulness in the body. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and I see it's happening in lots of places. And, you know, and let's remember that uh, the the locus of control of health is largely external, up to 70 percent outside of ourselves. Right. So we think like it's a big problem in the sort of upper middle class white you know, world in the United States of yoga world that like, oh, I just go to yoga to stay healthy. Well, you know, you also live in a neighborhood where you can go to Whole Foods and you have Mm -hmm. money to put stuff there. And, you know, and you have people in your social networks who are also eating well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so we have to remember that these are very deep entrenched social problems. They are interwoven with um, with problems of poverty with problems of, you know, the health problems are deeply interwoven with problems of poverty, with problems of race. You know, I was at a healthcare conference a couple of years ago and, and the, the helicopters were flying overhead because Keith Scott had just been murdered by police in Charlotte. And it was in, I was in Charlotte and there were like riots going on in the streets, or I should say protests. They're not riots. And, uh, (laughs) the police are the ones that do the riots. So anyway, (laughs) there's protests going on in the streets. And I was told, you know, and I got up there and I was like, look, every healthcare worker has to work towards social justice. Every Mm. health has to work towards social justice. It's part because if if you understand anything about the problems in health, you know that they're completely intertwined with problems of of race, class, you know, poverty. Uh, And uh, they never asked me to come back after that. But I did get a standing ovation. Well, the social determinants of health are, are like a mind blower, you know, once you start to understand, because there is so much self-righteousness of like, yes. oh, if you were only more disciplined yep. and oh, those people who just eat white bread or what, you know, and it, it's like, no, 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 you try it. 
you try living in that neighborhood where there is no ripe fruit or there is no, there are not any fresh vegetables. There's no transport. There's no money. There's, it's very difficult. And and this is such a, at this point in time uh, to see all this consciousness rising about this stuff is amazing. Isn't it? It's heartening. It really is. It's just transformational. Isn't it? We were, and we were talking with Michelle C. Johnson uh, about a week ago and we were talking about, you know, she was sort of saying, look, the level of intensity that we're experiencing at the moment around all this isn't sustainable. And so we need to we need to be, you know, cultivating tools to kind of self-regulate so that we can so that we can keep this going so that we can hang with this long enough to, you know, to see it really start to make the changes that we're all hoping for. Exactly. So the work it's, you're doing is so important. So is. important. Because I, you say university professors are doing it, but but it's not bringing it to the level of yoga teachers. And I and I it, we have such an important public health function because we get 20 whatever people in a room on a on a weekly basis in a non medical environment, hopefully an infor- affordable group environment. Although I know it leaves a lot of people out. Um, but there's this contact that we're having and some information that we can be providing that is just such an important platform to begin that. So work that you're doing, which is kind of translating all of that PhD language into something that people can understand and teach from, I think is tremendously important. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think yoga teachers have. So like I, I always tell people like, don't think about yoga as sort of a hobby, you know, think about it as a profession. Mm -hmm. And I had one of my students came to me after she went through my 300 hour advanced program and she had been through like, you know, the typical vinyasa 200 hour program. And she said, you taught me how to respect yoga. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like we got to think, you don't just say you're, you're just a yoga teacher. You're, you're really doing much more than that. You know, Mm -hmm. I've got just, I guess we're kind of wrapping this up, but I've got got a question for someone who has been involved in yoga for so long. um, What, what can you say are the secrets to staying the course? (laughs) I think it's having a supportive husband (laughs) or partner. I should say partner. Yeah. Um, That's, that's kind of a joke, but it's true too, because I would be like, I'd come home and there'd be like one, two people in my class. I'd be like, I can't believe I'm doing this. And he would say, he would literally say to me, well, you could always go get a job at the dollar store. And there's nothing <laughs> wrong with having a job at the dollar store. Believe sure. me, that's not what I'm saying. No. But, you know, he would like joke with me like that. He's like, you could do anything else. You know, you could, there's plenty of other jobs out there. You don't have to teach yoga. And then I'd be like, oh yeah, I like teaching yoga. And then the other thing he would always say to me is um, even if you only help one person, you've done something good with your life, you know, because Maria and I went to this elite university, like my friends all became lawyers and doctors and business people and <laughs> investment bankers. And, stuff, yeah. and, I, and I would be like, I'd go, be going to a reunion, like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed, you know? And my husband would be like, you people tell you every day that you changed their life. Yeah. Yeah. You're a yoga teacher. People tell you every day. Do you think they tell that to their lawyers? Mm. <laughs> nope. So he really kept me going when I was feeling not so good about myself or feeling like, you know, do I really want to keep this going? And then as the industry turned, it kind of turned in my favor, you know, 
Um, and that's that's been and I think you both probably have experienced that, too. You've both been around for a while. So I think you both have experienced that, too. Like the industry is turning towards something deeper and something mm-hmm. slower and something sustainable. And that's it's inspiring. Yeah. Can I just say uh, you're like my new hero. I'm inspired to be talking to you about the role that you're playing for teachers and for students and for the world in general. Thank you. My sister and friend over there doing doing the work, being inspiring. It's great. So funny that we ended up doing stuff, you know. Yeah, isn't it? Well, it is, except what I love about what Christine's doing is is she's talking on Capitol Hill to public policy. I mean, that's just you've got that big picture perspective and um, and I encourage who's, whoever's listening to look at your blog and look as you write so well and you you really can get really complicated information across, which is a gift. You can land it. No, I'm so grateful because I take it and I'm like, oh, OK, now I understand what she said. I can. <laughs> now, now Christine told me now I get it. But, uh, you know, you can turn an academic paper into something that is actually a digestible that's really important because otherwise it all just lives in those lofty ivory towers and it's, yeah. and there's this feeling of impotence and of, of, well, you know, what, what can I do? So mm-hmm. it connects, it connects that bigger picture. Oh, thank you. Mm. Well, and thank you for, for helping me to learn to take care of myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's so nice. I'm not doing that at all, but that's great that I did. <laughs> you know, I wrote you a poem. Oh, did you know? Do you remember that poem I wrote you? I'm sure I read it to you. Do you still? I wrote Maria a poem. I don't know where it is now, but I remember parts of it, and it was something like, and what I said in that poem was something like, the end line was something like, "Our lives will touch always across the span of space and time." Right. (laughs) You remember that? That's so sweet and like romantic and gorgeous. I know. But I totally feel like that. Evangelists on side of the either side of the planet. Thank you so much. I'm so yeah. excited. You were you were one of the first. You know, I said to Shar, we got to get Christine on. Oh, and thank you. So, because that's well, tell me what y'all are um, doing with the podcast. Like, what's your plan for it or your inspiration? I suppose our our initial inspiration was um, there's all this stuff that you learn about yoga, and we know that it applies to life. But there's not enough talk about, like, what does it look like in your daily life? You know, you can talk right. about asana all you want and, and all the different tools, but how do they actually help you to live better? And so that was kind of the – and we just – because we just love talking to each other, we're like, let's just talk about this. And so oh, we've just cool. had these great conversations with people about that very thing and how they're using it and how they're teaching others to use it. And we have no idea where it's going, but it seems to be going, doesn't it? It does seem to be going. And yeah. I think it's really just actually a pure pleasure yeah. to to share and to kind of get out. And I guess get that really practical idea of how do you really use it? How do you land it in your own life if you're a yoga teacher, for your students if you're a yoga teacher, that kind of that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So I don't know what we're going to do with it. Just keep yeah. talking until we run but out of stuff to talk about. It was to make it real conversations. We didn't want to have like a scripted list of, you know, um, questions and do it that way. Cause we met and started having a conversation and it was very much like yoga nerdy friends yeah. and <laughs> kind of fade away and be like, okay, we'll leave you guys to it. And, uh, <laughs> and it was like, well, I wonder if anyone else wants to listen. That's so, perfect. That's I love great. it. That's so, so great. Or is if we enjoy it and find it interesting, like, and it seems like it might be useful to the, to somebody else. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, thank you for having me. I really am very honored. It's been really nice to be here. And also, if you want to give your listeners my um, uh, Weather the Storm ebook, it's free. So I right when COVID hit, um, you know, and everything shut down, um, my husband and I kind of looked at each other and we were like, we have to do something. And um, so we sat down and we wrote this ebook together. I'm just bringing in all of the yoga tools and how you can weave them into your daily life and use this time as an opportunity to build resilience. So I'm well happy to share that with everyone. Fantastic. I'm get, I'm going to go get it straight away. <laughs> and you do have to get it straight away, though, don't you? Because um, you it, is it time bound when you get the link? No, not that that one. No, not you that can, one. That, one, that one's not time bound. No, if it's a course, sometimes they're like, you know, you have to buy it in 48 hours or something. I, I try and stay out of the marketing stuff. Marketing's a little, as you know, it's an interesting, interesting waters to navigate marketing. Mm-hmm. But, but when I decided, and, you know, I don't know if you want to put this in, but when I decided I was going to like use the tools of market, I didn't market for years. Yeah. And then, and then I was on a Facebook group and all these people were complaining about some like, you know, yoga, uh, internet rock star. And, um, and I got to the, and I was reading the comments and I got to this one comment and the guy said, you can complain all you want, or you can use the very well-known tools of marketing and do something about it. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the angels were singing and I was like, I'm going to do this. And, well, I'm uh, interested my- actually, cause I think, cause we talked to Meadow Hisslink who lives in your town and oh, I think you've been. Podcast, and she's very marketing savvy and 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 I have seen your marketing savvy grow so yeah. did you have to learn that so I hired a digital marketing company okay I just I just went and I just went for it and Mado has been great you know she's um, been so supportive of my work and and uh, I've known her forever she did one of my training programs like I've known her forever you know uh-huh. so I'm so happy to see her being so successful it's great Oh, that, that makes me so relaxed for you because I was feeling very tired for you if you were doing all that marketing. So I'm so happy that you just got to <laughs> that up because I'm like, how is she doing all this work? She needs to take some rest. <laughs> that is just so impressive. You're but, not the uh, only person who tells me I do need to rest more. I mean, it's been very intense for the past year and a half, very intense. But um, But I'm kind of at a place now where I'm like finding, oh, I have a little bit of spaciousness here and there and you know, I mean, it looks like, oh, she's got all these people, blah, blah, blah. But it's never like that. It's mm. always like, you know, there's a slog behind everything. <laughs> but but I will say that, you know, online digital marketing is um, it's the future. It's the present. It's the future. And there's lots of opportunities for yoga people in this space. Lots mm. more opportunities, you know, to reach all sorts of different people that need you, you know. So yeah. why not use it, you know? Yeah, that's right. And expand your window of tolerance for it. (laughs) (laughs) The occasion. Yeah, it was such a marketing is such a yoga practice because you have to be like, how does that sit with me? Can I sit with that? Can I tolerate it? Do Mm. I am I like, no, that is not part of me. I'm not interested in going there. Will I go? I can go there. And then how do I feel? okay about myself that I can step out and do and like, you know, step out there and talk to thousands of people because that's what you do in marketing. I mean, you talk to thousands of people and many of them are just like Meh, marketing and they don't care. Um, most of them are don't say nasty things to you, which is good, but you do get the occasional extremely nasty comment. And how does that sit with you? That's a yoga practice, you know? Mm. 
So it's taught me a lot, that's for sure, about myself and, you know, and what I will tolerate, what I won't tolerate. And, <laughs> and it's also really, it's helped me to be much more okay with people not liking me, hmm. which was the thing, you know, like, hmm. you better like me. <laughs> and, and <laughs> that's my stuff. And I got a lot better with being like, okay, you don't like me. There's lots of other yoga teachers. Go over there, find them, you know. Because it's coming up over and over again with everyone we talk about is that is using your yoga, whether it's, whether it's um, talking about white supremacy or whether it's talking about marketing or it's using that sense of that agency, that sense of internal guidance and, and checking in with yourself to check how am I going here and what is my direction and do I need to pause? Is this okay? Beautiful. It's a lesson. There are so many lessons. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for yeah. your time. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to sharing this. <laughs> Thank you. Both. Okay. Was there anything we didn't talk about? I don't know if we've had a more wide ranging conversation on this podcast and what a joy it was to spend time with Christine. She truly is a wise and funny woman. And I'm so glad to know her. And did you catch that little insight into the marvelous Maria? Yep, she has been a self-care evangelist since way before it was cool. So little shout out to you, Maria, for your long history of spreading the love. And thanks again to you, Christine, for doing all that you're doing to shift hearts and minds about the true power of yoga. I know for lots of folks out there, the idea of slowing down your yoga probably sounds boring at best, but I got to tell you that slower does not mean easier or weaker. One of the things I've found as I've started to slow my yoga down over the years is that it's really given me space to hear and learn about what I really need. So if you've ever wondered about all this talking we do about the more subtle aspects of yoga, I am inviting you to dive in with both feet and give this stuff a try. I can tell you it will enlighten and expand and strengthen you in ways that you can't even imagine. And if you want to know more about Christine's particular flavor of slower yoga, you can check out her website. We've put all the links in the show notes. So what's next? Well, we had a wonderful and yes, enlightening chat with Accessible Yoga's very own Jeevana Heyman. Yeah, we had the pleasure of talking with him about his past and his present and his future in the area of social justice. And we even managed to inspire a few ideas for the next book he's writing on the subject. That is all coming up next time. So thanks, as always, for listening and for all the support and praise you've been throwing our way. We appreciate it all. And we invite you to keep connecting with us here or anywhere. Take care of yourselves. Namaste.